Children notice skin color and they assign meaning to people whose skin color is different from their own. And when you take into account that we are all socialized into white supremacy, it becomes clear that we must interrupt the racial framework children develop because if we don't, they will lead to beliefs of both racial superiority and internalized racial inferiority. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Denisha Jones, and I am the co-editor of this book, um, this amazing book where we have over 30 contributors um, to talk about the story of educators from across the country who are making Black Lives Matter at school. Um, I'm really delighted for today's conversation because I worked really hard to ensure that the voices of early childhood educators um, were in this book, because we know the importance of this work for really young children. And I am a former kindergarten teacher and early childhood teacher educator. And it was just so important to include um, everyone's voice who are are doing this work in centering the youngest of children. Um, So I'm going to quickly introduce everyone, but because I wanted to be on the panel, um, we have a special moderator for today as well, too. Um, So we have, I'll start with our moderator. Nancy Carlson Page is the uh, co-founder and president of Defending the Early Years, and they're co-sponsoring today's uh, panel discussion, and she is going to be our moderator. Um, Our panelists include just an amazing group of early childhood educators, um, Lelena Garcia, who's a 5'6 head teacher at Manhattan Country Day School, and Manhattan Country School, and author of What We Believe, um, a Black Lives Matter Principles Activity Book. And so we're really excited to have Lelania here. We also have Makai Kellogg, who's an amazing early childhood educator at School for Friends in Washington, D.C. Um, and then we have the amazing, I just everyone's amazing, I'm just going to keep saying that, right? <laughs> Angela Harris, a first grade teacher and chairwoman of the Black Educators Caucus. Thank you so much, Angela, for being here. And we have Takima Bunchsmith, Executive Director for the Center on Culture, Race, and Equity at Bank Street College, and who um, has done amazing work ensuring that there is a Black Lives Matter Early Childhood Symposium every year that we've been doing this national work. And so I'm so excited again to, to have this conversation where we are centering the youngest of Black children um, and the work of the, the educators who take the time to, to care for them and nurture them. And so I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, um, who's going to tell you a little bit about what you can expect today. Hi, everyone. Um, Welcome to our Black Lives Matter and Early Education webinar, which it is a great honor for me to be moderating, and especially because I just found out (laughs) Denisha wanted to do it. Um, And uh, also, um, at Defending the Early Years, we are very happy to be co-sponsoring this with Haymarket Books because we see the uh, rising momentum for dealing with issues of race, racism, um, Black Lives Matter in education, racial justice issues, that's a very hopeful sign in education. And um, 
we, we need to think more deeply about what does it mean for early childhood. And, you know, in our field, we have a long history of a lot of solid work in anti-bias. And it, many, many people have contributed to that over the years. And we have a strong foundation to build on. But that work has not addressed anti-racism work or anti-blackness work. And that's where we're at right now. That's what we need to be thinking about and um, going forward with. And we very much want that at, at DEY. So fortunately for us, we have this group of amazing educators who are going to educate us tonight and um, share their experience and their insights about how we do this kind of work with younger children. And um, as we already saw, they all contributed to this amazing book, Black Lives Matter in School, that I hope everyone either has read or will want to read. And uh, so I'm and they're going to help us really figure out for ourselves, how do we go forward in dealing with issues of um, racism, racial justice, and education. So <clears throat> I'm gonna ask each of the panelists a question. She'll answer it, and then one of the other panelists will comment uh, briefly on that, her reflections on that. And that will take our first hour, and then uh, we'll have a half an hour for you all to write in your questions, and they'll be able to answer some of those too. So, Lelania, let's start with you because you um, had the genius to figure out how to rewrite the Black Lives Matter guiding principles for younger children and make this activity, um, this incredible activity book for kids. So, um, Lelania, can you explain about the Black Lives Matter guiding principles and how you adapted them to be meaningful for younger children? Sure. Um, I think a thing that is so important is that when we really think about how we run our early childhood classrooms, we are already, you know, really trying to prepare children for a kinder and gentler and more compassionate world. Um, the world is not run the way that we run our early childhood classrooms, but it should be. And when we teach kids about looking at your friend's face, how is your friend feeling? What happens if you knock over their block building? I understand that it was an accident, but how can you help your friend feel better? When we talk to kids about I statements, we are already doing this work. And when I found out about Black Lives Matter at school, it was through um, Free Minds Free People. A bunch of people at my school had gone to that conference and came back fired up. And they're like, all right, we're gonna do this. And I went to my first meeting and the principles of Black Lives Matter were on the wall. And we did a gallery walk and I remember thinking, well, this is, this is it. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna help put these big ideas into language we can use with little people because we're already doing so much of it. And I don't really have to adapt the principles to fit into our classrooms. We just have to adapt the language. Because when we think about restorative justice, we're already doing that. We don't let a kid knock over someone's block building and then just walk away. You know, what friend, how do you help your friend? Do you want them to help re help you rebuild? What, ha what happens to repair the harm, right? When we have families in our classrooms, when we do a family study, we are saying all of the families in our community are welcome. There are many ways to have a family. What do you think is important about your family? What is special about your family? We're already doing all of that. And so sometimes people think, oh my gosh, if I'm gonna talk about Black Lives Matter, that means I have to talk about police violence. And there is so much more to that because the movement is actually visionary. It's not reactive, it is proactive. 
because these principles are a framework for a society where we all have what we need, where we are all safe, where we are all seen, where we are all loved. And I want to live in that world. And I know that kids do too. And kids have a really good grasp of justice and equity. And when you're talking to little kids, do they really think they should get all of the cookies? No. Like they might like to get all the cookies, but they don't really think they should. And they understand that. And little kids ask some of the most important questions that adults have trained themselves to not have to answer. Children ask questions like, well, why doesn't everyone have a home? Or, wait, everyone should have enough food. Why don't some people have enough food? And when we answer those questions, we realize that we have to do a bunch of mental gymnastics. We have to say, well, some people, because of our systems and capitalism, and wait, you know what, kids? You're right. Everyone should have a home. And so when I was thinking about the work that we already do, I knew that this would really fit right in. And I found that in the time since I've been teaching it, kids are so engaged. They're, they're in some ways, they're like, well, of course, obviously. And then there are some ideas that are new to them that they're very excited about learning about. And the ways that Black Lives Matter also talks about our responsibility as community members also fits right into what we're teaching young children. So like in my class in the five sixes, which is kindergarten, we make a job chart. We think about our five sixes community. What's our responsibility as community members? Oh, everybody has to be safe. Oh, we have to be gentle with people's feelings. We have to be kind to people's bodies. We have to take care of each other. That sounds great. And I think that sometimes we really feel as though things that are uncomfortable to us because we've learned that they're uncomfortable or that we don't talk about them, we worry that kids will feel that way. But that is not how they feel. Kids have a very different understanding of the world because they're very young and they haven't internalized all of the stories that we've internalized. And so when I notice that children are questioning the world they see, we give them space to talk about it. And I think that one of the things that is so important is every time an adult says, this is really hard for me, I say, I know. Imagine if you had been able to practice it your whole life. Wouldn't that make it so much easier? And that's what we can do. We can give kids opportunity to practice anti-racist behavior their whole lives. And it will be much easier because we're having to unlearn. That's really hard. But kids aren't having to unlearn. Kids are trying to figure out the world. Um, so that's, that's kind of my flow as I do this. And I just have to say that every year it gets easier and easier. And the other thing I can say is that every teacher I've ever talked to has been a little bit nervous before they start, but no one I know has ever taught it for a year and then not. Everyone I know has taught it, has had such good experiences with it that they go deeper and deeper each year. And I think that our adult anxiety can hold us back. But everyone I know who has started this work continues it and finds it so fulfilling. And I know that as our kids get older and older, I hear from eight nines teachers what they're saying. And they're like, oh, we learned that in the language class. Or like, of course. Or I mean, sometimes they're, they're eight and nine. So they're like, duh. They're not very nice about it sometimes. But they really think these are ideas that we should all be living our lives by. And I agree. Thank you so much. Did you finish? I'm done. You're done. 
Wow, that, those words are inspiring. Thank you so much, Angela. Do you want to? Did you want to comment a little? Oh, can she hear me, Angela? I think she is bumped off. I think she accidentally hung oh. up on herself. Now she's coming back. <laughs> okay, Angela, do you, do you have a couple comments? <clears throat> You're you got to unmute. No. Hear me now. Uh, okay. All right. Sorry about that, you all. My apologies. Um, I'm new to Skype, but I think. First of all, I think it's really easy to go. I mean, it's difficult to go after Lelania, everything that she said. I'm co-signing all of those things. I think she made a really valid point, right, about how it's difficult for us as educators. Sometimes when we look at those 13 guiding principles, um, there are two in particular that I think I shared this with Denisha, you know, once in the conversation that I really struggled with, you know, um, the queer affirming and the transgender affirming. Those are two particularly working in a predominantly black school and understanding the relationship that the black community has with the LGBTQIA community as well as gender identity. Those were ones that I knew immediately I would get pushback from on my par- from my parents and like from the school community. So those were ones that I think in the beginning I was like, well, I'll do all the other ones, but I won't do these two. Right. And so I really challenged myself, um, you know, to really be sure to be inclusive of those things. And it's so funny. The moment that I talked those two particular uh, 13 guiding principles. I had a young scholar come up to me. Um, he pulled me in our coat room and he was like, Mrs. Harris, my brother is gay and he likes to wear girls clothes and like literally opened up to me about all of these things that was that was happening in his household. And so I was like, well, you tell your brother he can come here and he can help us. His brother started volunteering in the classroom and the students would ask him, like, why do you wear fingernails and why do you do this? And so like it really opened up a dialogue and a conversation that I don't think necessarily would have happened if I hadn't allowed myself to step out of my own box and my own discomfort and say like, hey, they're ready to have these conversations. We've talked about all of the 11 other guiding principles. Why can't we talk about these last two? And so like, I just think that that ultimately goes back to Lelania's point about, you know, educators sometimes being in our own ways and how our students, our scholars really show us that they're ready to have these conversations and that they're willing to have these conversations. And they're, they're more accepting sometimes than we could ever imagine. Thank you very much. Okay, next question goes to Makai. <clears throat> so as a preschool teacher and an anti-bias educator, Makai, what has your experience taught you about how to bring race and racism into our work with young children? Uh, can you all hear me? Yes. Perfect. Okay. Um, so first, I want to share about School for Friends, where I've taught for 10 or so years. Um, it's an independent Quaker preschool, which means that uh, we uphold Quaker values such as cooperation, nonviolence, uh, stewardship, and integrity. Um, it also has a stated anti-bias mission, affirming the anti-bias goals. Uh, the teaching staff is mainly Black women and women of color. Uh, There's a multiracial student population with uh, predominantly white children, and we serve children between 18 months and five years old, uh, and we're located in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. So that's just to give a little context. Uh, So in 2018, um, I 
found out about Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action, and I was super excited to introduce it as an anti-racist initiative um, that was accessible to early childhood educators and young children and their families. Um, the guiding principles work to develop one's sense of self and belonging in community, which Lelania did a beautiful job of uh, making it so accessible. Um, so I drafted a letter to families uh, informing them on the ways the guiding principles align with our Quaker values and anti-bias mission. And I was also doing that informally with my colleagues. And so the Friday before we were supposed to start, um, we met during a staff meeting um, so we could review the letter before it was going out to families that day. And so most of the teaching staff uh, were supportive, but some teachers expressed discomfort um, that we were informing parents on short notice. Um, they were afraid of how white parents would react. Um, they felt unprepared to teach lessons accurately and worried about saying the wrong thing if they were asked. Um, and so even though teachers have been doing anti-bias work in the classrooms over the years by like addressing gender stereotypes and exploring skin color, uh, Black Lives Matter was something different, right? Because it takes on a political tone and it calls out white supremacy. And so it wasn't necessarily that the teachers believed it to be a negative phrase, but there was legitimate concern that parents would question it leading to some backlash. And so questions such as, how are teachers connected to the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, what was their understanding of it? What messages had they received from media and through personal experiences? You know, none of that was discussed or unpacked prior um, to pushing for our participation as a whole school. And so I needed to have empathy for my colleagues who were reluctant to participate. And I'm thankful in the end that the teachers did speak up because it wouldn't have been authentic and it would have led to distrust. And so um, that spring, I, I had a, a five week sabbatical where I had time to reflect and um, connected with phenomenal mentors and experts um, who sparked many ideas that not only addressed Black Lives Matter at school, but also continuous conversations about race, racism, and social justice. And like we know, everyone carries biases from their own life experiences from childhood to adulthood. And that anti-bias and anti-racism work is an ongoing process that you can't just check a box for, right? It involves self-work, interpersonal work, and institutional work. And also, just because you work at a school that has an anti-bias mission doesn't mean every teacher is um, in the same place, right, in their anti-bias journey. So I started to lead monthly anti-bias staff meetings um, that focus on a variety of social identities and topics uh, to engage in self-reflection and discussions on classroom application. Also, teachers are invited uh, to D.C. area educators for social justice events and send equity and diversity resources. And so for the following year, uh, for the week of action, I invited uh, Dr. Denisha Jones, who's also on the panel, uh, to come in and lead an info session to answer everyone's questions and concerns. I also provided more guidance on how the guiding principles are conveyed in children's books. So from there, the planning turned into a collaboration, uh, which made it an even more enriching experience. Uh, we were able to rotate books and activities and decided what we could do collectively or tailor for each classroom. And that was a really exciting year. 
Um, everyone was unapologetic about it and there wasn't any fear. And the week of action has become an institutional norm. It's on our school calendar and it's on our school website. Um, the parent letter goes out early now, and um, I host a parent info session to share about the guiding principles. I show examples of what classrooms have done um, across the age groups and also, you know, provide space for questions and feedback. And we've only had positive uh, support from families. And I also send out resources so they can continue the conversation at home and do the work themselves. So the open communication with teachers and families uh, made Black Lives Matter at school successful. So in terms of um, advice for bringing race and racism into our work with young children, you know, I believe we must actively be anti-racist, right? We, we have to ask, how are we disrupting racism in ourselves, in our relationships, uh, within our families and with children? And if you as an educator have not grappled with or acknowledged or named the messages you received growing up about race or thought about how race impacts your life, it makes it really hard to engage in conversations with the children in your classroom and their families. Um, so you can, if you're, if you're uncomfortable or you've never had these conversations before um, or you don't feel safe at work talking about it, um, you can try to find or create that space in your school or among your teaching team or even uh, with a local activist group. Because um, the deep work of connection and building trust is like important to healthy relationships and cultivating a space to be vulnerable uh, where concerns and questions are valid can really transform a school. And so both the frameworks of the anti-bias education goals and the 13 guiding principles, oh gosh, excuse me, <clears throat> um, are crucial to the work of justice and equity because a child can't stand up for themselves if they don't have a positive self-concept and they can't stand up for others if they don't see someone as worthy of justice. Um, so the guiding principles counter systems of oppression that are founded in white supremacy, such as heterosexism, ableism, disposability, and racism. And so the brilliant interpretation by Lilinia makes them accessible to everybody. And then I also want to um, shout out this new book that came out. The book launch was yesterday. It's called Our Skin. Uh, first conversation about race. Um, I started reading it in my classroom today and my toddler <laughs> started reading it to herself uh, yesterday. And it's pretty amazing. And it's really helpful for both adults and children. Um, also, something that I'm going to start this year is um, using the staff meetings to go over each principle and using what we believe um, and to use the discussion prompts. Um, and the educator guide is really helpful as well. And so, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> so to include families in the conversations, I send out monthly resources, I lead parent workshops, and I have a parent book club. And then also teachers inform families of what they're doing in the classroom, how they're talking about um, different issues um, so that the parents can continue at home. And if you have any specific questions or want to learn more about anti-bias and anti-racism work in the early childhood classroom, you can reach out to me um, or read the posts on my blog, um, makaiseecee.wordpress.com. Makai, thank you so much. Really inspiring the amount of experience you've clocked with this. Denisha, you want to make some comments? 
I do. And first I want to like lift up Makai because, you know, I know that she's nervous to be here around. She, she calls us giants, but she's a giant too, right? She's doing amazing work with young children. I think I revere childcare teachers more than anybody on the planet, right? Because they're doing that such important fundamental work. And when I first met Makai, she was traveling to conferences around the country, learning about really taking her work in the anti-bias seriously. And we just kept running into each other at conferences. And she was an alum of the school that I was currently teaching at at the time. And so I saw the commitment she had to this work, right? And I knew I wanted her to tell the story. But I did want to follow up because I, I want to talk about how I came in to support the school, because I think that's really important. When I tell the story, people assume that her colleagues are white women and they don't want to do this. And that's not true, right? She told you her school is predominantly Black women and women of color, the teachers who work there. But we have to remember that there is a generational divide in Black Lives matter and historic civil rights movements, right? So when an older Black woman right here, you're teaching Black Lives Matter, they might think you're trying to teach kids about police brutality. And they have every right to be like, that is not appropriate because it's not, right? And so it's really important that we don't dismiss any any fear or criticisms about what's happening because before people know what it really is, right? So I showed up and I sat in with the teachers and the administrators in two different sessions and just talked about how this got started, right? What happened in John Muir Elementary School in Seattle that led to this, how Philadelphia educators picked these principles and why, and how we were really trying to shift the narrative so that we teach through Black joy, right? And Black humanity. And, you know, of course the administrator had some questions, well, how do what, what do I do when parents push back about other cultural groups? And I, I say you one recognize that, yeah, we should be teaching about other cultural groups, right? But we can start in the month of February with Black Lives Matter, right? That doesn't mean we can't talk about other groups. And everyone should feel that their history and their culture is being valued by the school. And it just took those conversations to really bring everyone in. And then, like she said, they started coming to our workshops through the DC Educators um, for Social Justice, right? All her teachers were coming. We did these great workshops on children's literature. Um, some people have asked me about children's literature for the movement. I mean, definitely check out um, Lelania's book because I know she talks about it in there. And then also if you go to the um, Teaching for Change website, socialjusticebooks.org as well, they list a lot of the books that actually give books for each principle that you can connect to, right? So I think it's really just about giving teachers resources, answering their questions and supporting them on this journey so that as Makai said, it has to be 100% buy-in, right? Even in Seattle, when they did the first Black Lives Matter at school day, they were worried that only some teachers would wear the shirts. What message does that send to children if they're walking down the hall and these teachers' shirts say Black Lives Matter and these teachers do doesn't, right? They were so worried about that. So they did the work to talk to teachers, to get everyone to agree, and that didn't happen, right? So I just think it's really important. Her story is just so important why we have to take the time to meet people where they are and bring them along to the, where we want them to be. Thank you. So Angela, as a first grade teacher in an African-American immersion school, what can you tell us about why we should address issues of race, identity, and colorism with young children? 
So the first question I always get is, what is an African-American immersion school? Um, And so I always like to preface anytime I talk about my school. First, I want to introduce my school, which is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School, the African-American immersion school. And we say the African-American immersion school because we represent the only African-American immersion school in the state of Wisconsin. And I do believe the only public African-American immersion school in our country. Um, So it's important for me to really lift that up because the work is so important. So uh, African-American immersion school is basically a school where everything about our culture permeates our entire school building. So whether it's the exterior of our school building, when you're driving around and you see murals on the outside of our school of Dr. King, or you see the mural on the other side of the building that says restoring hope, hope in the dream or the big Harambe sign outside of the school. When you pull up to the minute you walk into the building and you're greeted by our mural that tells the story of our history from pre-enslavement up until today. You see a, a huge Sankofa bird because we 100 we 100% believe it is so important to go back and fetch our past so that no, number one, we can learn about, learn about ourselves, but also so we don't repeat it, right? And all of our ancestors are on that mural. Mansa Musa, Queen Nzinga, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Dr. King. Um, and then there's murals in the building of our scholars from the past um, and uh, of them in the community. It's in the language that we use when we talk to our scholars. We have a, a, a scholar declaration in Kingian values, and we talk about the definition of a scholar. A scholar is somebody who can read, write, think, compute, speak well, appreciate the arts, and behave in socially appropriate ways. Our Kingian values, our scholarship, peace, justice, equality, courage, community, service. And so we uphold those values. We uphold those principles in our day-to-day interactions with our students. And then also it's reflective in our curriculum. And so like I often will joke, right, when people talk about Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action, I say it's always Black Lives Matter at Dr. King because that's what we do every day. It's a part of our curriculum. So in the 90s, the Milwaukee School Board of Directors decided to pass a resolution to have two African-American immersion schools in our district. One, which is uh, Dr. King Elementary, which still exists now. And the second school was a, a middle school called Victor Berger Middle School, which then became Malcolm X Academy. And so the idea was to provide black students with this immersive uh, cultural experience, but then create a feeder program where they weren't just getting in an elementary school. They would also be getting it in middle school with the hopes of even expanding the feeder program beyond that to a high school. Well, ultimately, you know, as things happen in school districts, principals change, uh, school board superintendents change, and the priorities change and become different. Um, And so the uh, immersion school wasn't necessarily a priority for my district after 1996. Um, So my principal, my past principal, Dr. Marcus Arrington, revived African-American immersion schools about five years ago, which is when I began working at Dr. King and I immediately knew that that was a place that was going to be my home. And so when we talk about Dr. King particularly, it resides in the zip code 53212, which is right next door to a very popular zip code here in Milwaukee, 53206. Um, And the 53206 uh, zip code in Milwaukee represents the most incarcerated, um, the highest rates of unemployment, um, and the highest rates of poverty. Um, And so those same systemic issues that permeate 
528-5306, pour into 53212. And um, so this, this is the student population that we're dealing with. But when Dr. King was its most successful in the 90s, um, in 1996, uh, a five-year study was done about it. They were what was considered a 90-90-90 school. So 90% of the students were students of color. 90% of the students received uh, Title I or free or reduced lunch, some sort of um, um, services. Um, but 90% of the students were also um, scoring at or be a at or above on their reading assessment for the state. So that just shows you um, part of the reason why it's so important to have schools that really center students' needs. And when we're talking about um you know, African-American immersion schools, what we're really talking about is disrupting the system that was never built for black children in the first place. So we're kind of, we're trying to break something. We're trying to fix something that was broken. Um, And it's so important that our school starts at K-3 and we start at those very fundamental ages with teaching children about who they are, teaching them to think critically about their community. Like Lelania said earlier, what are the, the problems that exist in our community and how can we fix those problems? And then they begin to, as they get older really begin to have really deep critical conversations and deep critiques about the systems that they live in and the systems that they're being educated in. I tell this story in the chapter that I wrote in in the book in particular um, about a a colorism conversation that popped up in my um, kindergarten classroom. I think the first year that I taught Black Lives Matter Week of Action in our schools and I had a a young lady in in my class that was a dark brown skinned girl um, and another young lady that was a a light skinned girl and like the little light-skinned girls would never want to play with her they wouldn't let her come in housekeeping they would call her like charcoal and blackie and things like that and one day she got so upset that she was crying on the carpet um and she was like so unhappy about her skin and about how she looked and so like that prompted me to call everybody to the carpet for a family meeting and so we began to talk about us being black and they were like I'm not black I'm brown I'm light brown and so there were all of these color delineations that they were having and I was like yes we are all different shades of black brown but ultimately we are all black and so this prompted a you know a broader conversation in our classroom and we talked about I do believe this is like one of the first lessons that I taught actually out of the Black Lives Matter at school curriculum where we talked about uh, what we see on the outside versus how we might feel on the inside. And um, we read the story. Oh, I can't remember what the story is uh, from the curriculum, but we read the story that yeah. went along with Go ahead, Denisha. What is it? It's the book One by Catherine. Yes, One One by Catherine. Yes. Yes. So we read the book One. And so we had this very deep conversation about how we don't judge each other based upon the color of our skin. And we all represent this one thing. And so, like, even now to this day, like, they'll be like, we're all black, Miss Harris. Yes, we are all like everybody is all black now. So, like, they're so proud to say that about each other. But I think about, like, the spaces where those conversations aren't happening, right? And the fact that I work at an African-American immersion school kind of allows me an opportunity to dive a little deeper in some of the conversations that folks may not necessarily be able to because they are so beholden to that box curriculum, right? Like we have our own African-American immersion curriculum that is inclusive of all of the, the standards and all of the things that we're supposed to be teaching. So we have a little bit more leeway in that space. But I mean, all 
ultimately, I could talk forever about this. So, but ultimately, I think when I think about you know, my school, I think about Carter G. Woodson um, and his book, The Miseducation of the Negro. And he talks about how the mere imparting of information is not education. And then that gets me into like this whole other mindset of thinking about schooling children versus actually educating them about who they are and where they come from um, and how they can make their communities better. And, you know, one of the things that we say in our scholar declaration is, um, I'm a scholar, I'm a leader. I will use what I learned to help my family and improve the conditions of my community. And so we are teaching them. This, these are the tools we're giving you, right, to go out and build a better community. And so this is in first K3, K4, K5. So by the time they're sixth, seventh, eighth grade, these are beasts, right, who are going out and challenging the structures that they're being educated in, educated in and standing up to teachers and saying like, hey, why don't we do Black Lives Matter Week of Action at our schools? Why aren't we learning about who Claudette Colvin is? Why do I only hear you talk about Rosa Parks and Dr. King? It's uh, thousands of other Black people that you could talk about. So ultimately, it's really about liberating ourselves so that we can then liberate others. And I think that that's ultimately the goal of African-American Immersion Schools and why it's so important to have those spaces for Black children. Angela, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Takima, do you want to? I think you're muted, Takima. Oh, there you go. You want to make a comment? I am unmuted and I'm on fire. This is such an amazing, inspiring conversation just to be able to hold space with those of you doing this work literally in front of children. I'm honored to be here and um, to give some of the, I think, further away, the balcony view, as we say, when we're talking about kind of organizations. And so, you know, everything that you all said struck me and I actually have comments for everyone, but I'm just gonna keep them to Angela. So when you share this story about this child, you know, this very young child experiencing the internalization of anti-Black racism for herself and her classmates also perpetrating it, it just reminds us that we live in a white supremacist, which is also by design an anti-Black society. And so once we as adults really process what that means on a personal level, on a professional level, on institutional levels, and what it means in society for over 400 years, then what happens when we show up and children show up in school spaces where we don't actively address it? They will absorb it and they will replicate it. And if they're lucky, like Lalenia said, they might as adults, maybe, you know, some are teenagers now are really getting it, but like spending a whole lot of time saying I've absorbed all this anti-Black racism because there was no counter in my entire educational experience and at home because families also internalize this, where was the interruption? It's not happening, then it's gonna be replicated. And to me, that really stands out to the pain that we just keep experiencing and putting upon our children Although we love them and we want the best for them, we cannot just say these words. We have to be proactive and be clear and have a plan and a vision that we are moving towards in terms of what we are creating for educational experiences for our children. So I want to just pull back because going back into early childhood, I was just kind of reading up on some of this stuff, some of the theory. I'm like a complete nerd. And so what I want us to know is that there have been psychologists, Black psychologists, doing research on Black children's racial identity since the early 1900s. 
In the 1940s, doctors Kenneth and Mamie Clark did the doll study. If you don't know what that study is, you need to go look it up. They did a lot. They have a lot of findings, but we mostly hear about the doll study, which is where black and white children overwhelmingly chose the white doll as the good doll, the pretty doll, the better doll, and the doll that they would want to play with. So black psychologists then for another 40 years spent time replicating these studies and also trying to figure out what the interventions were. So in the 80s and the 90s, and you mentioned your school, guess what the intervention is? Explicit conversations and surrounding children with positive images of Black culture, Black identity, Black interactions, intersectionality of Black identities. Essentially, the humanity of Black children is fully presented to children at the earliest of ages. And what the studies have shown is that you can change that preference for very young children. So I can share, if people want to look up some of the stuff, doctors um, Derek and Darlene Hobson did a study in 1988. They literally were like, let us try to fix this. And they found that black children and white children stopped having negative associations with blackness for three and four year olds. And so we know this is the case. Now in 2013, a filmmaker named Kiri Davis wanted to recreate. She was 15 in a high school in New York City, which doesn't do high stakes standardized testing. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, too. Right. So for her art performance based assessment, she wanted to see what would happen if I could recreate it. So she went to preschool in the Bronx and presented dolls to the children. And guess what she found? Okay. Yes, exactly the same as what they found in the 1940s is because there has not been a systematic and clear approach to interrupt anti-Black racism and to center Black children in their full humanity and joy at the earliest of ages. So what you're doing in your school um, is great. What we're doing with this movement is changing that and it's going to give Black children at the earliest of ages an opportunity to grow into their divine right to be full and whole humans. And it's also going to humanize people of other races who internalize anti-Black racism as well. And then they will begin to not perpetuate it as they grow up because they don't wake up in high school. Nobody wakes up in high school as an adult and says, oh my goodness, look at all these things I've learned. You're learning it from the time you're born. So I'm really happy to hear about the work and it doesn't have to only happen in an African-American immersion school. It has to happen everywhere. Because kids learn and are educated everywhere. So it's for parents, policymakers, you know, educators, teacher educators. Everyone has to be committed to doing this work. I'll stop. Dr. Kima, thank you so much. Don't go away. I've got a question for you. Right. <clears throat> because you're someone who works with adults. You, you do professional development. You work with education professionals. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you talk, because of that work, can you talk with us about your notion of our raceless field and what you think can be done to address the racelessness or race blind tendencies in the field of early childhood education? Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely start with my own experience. You know, I didn't wake up and have this understanding and this perspective. This is something that um, I, I knew was missing when I was in my graduate program for early childhood education. I was learning all the theory and all the practices and I was doing student teaching and I kept saying something feels off. Like, 
what about the role and the impact of culture and what about oppression in society? And I remember it was just like I had the questions and I would have these individual conversations, but I didn't have a canon that was presented to me that was fully, fully accurate. And so what I remember the the change point for me was in my first year, my graduate program, I discovered the Dream Keepers by Gloria Latson Billing. Um, Billings, excuse me. Her book is uh, Successful Teachers of African-American Children. And she coined the term culturally relevant teaching. And I remember going, okay, first of all, I had a culturally relevant educational experience until I was in eighth grade and I didn't even know it. So that's cool. And then I was like, this is what makes sense to me. This is what resonates me as I'm moving to teach uh, first grade in a predominantly black and brown community. And so essentially I tried to spend my career doing research to understand where do black children and black and black culture and children of color and where does race fit into this work that we're doing? Because I just kept feeling like it's missing. There's this like sanitized version. Like, do people feel like these conversations are too hard to have, you know, with children? But meanwhile, they're talking about it. And I don't have a guide to figure out. I have to do my best to figure out when, you know, this one says, I don't want to play with you because they're, you know, you can't have any brown princesses, um, you know, or people saying things about themselves. You know, I was like, I don't know. I just had to kind of figure it out. I kind of wish I could go back into the classroom now because I'm like, I know what I would say. And there's more resources. Um, so I think that's really problematic. And we have suffered and children and society has suffered from the raceless approach, I would say, or the multicultural approach, which was, you know, kind of where we were before, where we're all just, you know, different cultures, same people that completely ignores the reality of systemic oppression that that children and people live in. Um, so when we when I got introduced to the Black Lives Matter at school movement, I was like, I'm all in. I came in talking about uh, standardized testing and my role as a parent of opting my son out of these tests because they are racist. But then I was like, oh, I see a lot of things for, you know, high schoolers and like some for middle schoolers. And I was like, well, kids are black before they're 12. So where's the early childhood? <laughs> you know? And so what do they say? If, you know, if, if you don't see it, you have to build it. And so I was like, we're going to do a symposium. And at the Center on Culture, Race and Equity at Bank Street, um, you know, we just created something that has grown to this past February where 1,900 people logged on from around the country and other um, the Virgin Islands and Canada, uh, which was amazing. But in 2019, in the first symposium, I posed a question to the audience and I said, how many people have had sustained, deep professional development to help you figure out how to support Black children in the earliest years, zero to eight years old? 84% said they had none. And then what I did was every time I would do a talk or a workshop, you know, around the country, I would just ask that question again. And the number was usually higher. It was usually about 92% all the time. So then I would juxtapose that with the fact that black boys, uh, black children get suspended from preschool 3.6 times more often than white children. And black girls are getting suspended six times, right? That's in the, the earlier years, not necessarily preschool. And black LGBTQ children are experiencing violence and harm and bullying. And they, so then I'm like, okay, so what's going on? We're not learning how to support children to thrive, but we have all these disparities. So my thing is we've got to make it plain so we can make it right. 
right? We've got to fix this. We cannot live in a society where this is acceptable and continues. So this is the work that I've done over the past three years through um, my work at CCRE. And it's just growing because now this year it is actually a national partnership. So we have folks because we know it's a year of purpose, right? We're not just doing Centering Black Children in February. It's 24-7. And so there are events happening in California on the West Coast with policymakers, with uh, leaders, with families and family advocates. The Children's Equity Project in Arizona is doing all this policy work to really highlight disparities and also recommendations and solutions. And so this is uh, where my work is right now. And it feels very meaningful. And as of 2020, uh, you know, when there was a great what I call racial awakening for some and reawakening for others around anti-Black racism, the opportunity, as you mentioned, Nancy, is here and we have to grab it because we cannot go back. When schools open up and COVID is a distant memory, we don't need our children to go back and be suspended and ignored and not centered and not able to be fully human. We must do better. Thank you so much, Takima. Melania, you want to comment? Uh, Sure. Takima, I am so excited about the work you are doing and this idea that maybe in grad school, when we take teacher classes, we should learn about how to support Black children. I think that's an amazing idea. I think it's really important. And I think it's one of those things where sometimes people ignore that idea. Like We have to learn actively how to support Black children because we have all been taught our whole lives how not to support Black children. Right. So we've internalized all of these stories of white supremacy and heteronormativity and all in capitalism, like all of these stories we've internalized. And I feel like sometimes people really are gung ho and are excited because, as you say, we are in this moment. But there's also this idea of um, immediate gratification. Right. Like, what can I do? What is like on January 31st? I definitely got a bunch of requests for basically like a 90 minute just add water anti-racism lesson. That's not how it works. Like we, I went to grad school for six semesters to learn how to be a teacher. And then I spent many more years honing my craft. You can't learn how to be an anti-racist teacher in 90 minutes. It is an ongoing process, particularly because you, you are being bombarded with other messages all the time, right? Like it took us a long time to learn how to teach kids how to read and write. And the world is not telling us every day you should not read or write, right? Like it still took us years to hone that craft. And so knowing that at our institutions of higher learning, at our teacher education institutions, at professional developments, that that work is going to happen is really important to me because we cannot just act as though we take a class and we've learned it. Because not only can you not take one class and know how to teach, you definitely can't take one class and know how to teach a thing that you have internalized the opposite of. And it's going to take some work on ourselves. And I think people are ready for that. But they have to really understand that it's an ongoing journey. It's not fast. Awesome. Thank you. I just want to say that um, I'm not going to say how old I am, but my graduate experience was well over two decades ago. And I have to say that I'm so happy. Oh, that um, things have shifted in some graduate programs, and now there's some opportunity for professional development work, which is what we do at CCRE as well. So I just want to say there is progress, and it is slow, as you yeah. mentioned, Elena. It's slow, and and as you're acknowledging, it's internal too. 
It's not just external. It has to happen in both ways. And it's laborious. And for a lot of white people, it's it's frightening. So, you know, it's it's we and like you were acknowledging earlier, just uh, Denisha, just supporting all of you, supporting people's process so that they can progress, you know, without feeling so threatened that they they shut down to the whole idea that that we're talking about here. So, um, Denisha, question for you. Um, Many early childhood educators feel that talking about race and racism with young children is developmentally inappropriate and that young children are not developmentally ready or able to talk about this complex topic. What do you say to that? Yeah, it's great that we get to this question because I see it being discussed in the chat right now. I'm watching the chat on the YouTube and there are people arguing this out right now. So this is perfect timing, right? So I've heard this argument stated in many different ways, but it typically stems from the same premise that if we talk about race and racism, we're introducing concepts too hard for young children to understand. Even when children make statements that highlight negative thinking about racial groups, right? We've heard them all. Don't want to touch you because you're black and you'll turn me black or black is ugly or it's not good, right? We are quick to dismiss those statements as having any real racial intent because no one wants to label a child as racist because they say something offensive about a racial group. But the research on race and racism with young children makes it clear that young children can enact racial support superiority and assign racialized meaning to people based on their group status. Children notice skin color and they assign meaning to people whose skin color is different from their own. And when you take into account that we are all socialized into white supremacy, it becomes clear that we must interrupt the racial framework children develop because if we don't, they will lead to beliefs of both racial superiority and internalized racial inferiority. Right. And so does this mean children who make statements that display racial superiority are racist? No, we have to really understand what racism is. Racism is not about individual acts of prejudice or bias. Racism is a system of power that advantages those in the dominant racial group and disadvantages those in the non-dominant racial group. Children do not have the power to enact racism on anyone, but they can and do develop a racial framework that leads to a positive evaluation of whiteness, right? We just heard Takima talk about the doll study. That's a positive regard for whiteness and a negative evaluation or a negative regard for blackness. That is what we mean by anti-blackness. And often this framework goes unchecked because we dismiss comments and incidents of children enacting racial superiority or internalizing racial superiority as not a big deal. They don't know, they don't mean anything by it but they are making assumptions about what's happening. So here's a scenario, and I, I apologize, I don't, I can't cite where I got this from, but I remember I was asked to review, um, to review a study in a, in a book, in an article, and I remember this scenario, and I, I twisted it a little bit to play it out, but that's kind of where you know a researcher was looking at this. Imagine four children are playing together, a white boy, a white girl, a black girl, and a Latina girl. As they discuss the roles for their dramatic play, the white boy quickly dismisses suggestions from the black and Latina girl, but he agrees with the white girl. Many would not read enactment of racial superiority into this observation, but it appears that this boy does not value ideas that come from non-white children. And if this happens repeatedly without intervention, he will think that it's normal to dismiss ideas from people who are not white. And we see this behavior every day in adults. 
When a person of color is put into a position of authority, many white people are unable to allow them to lead. Or they don't even promote people of color because they don't believe these people can handle leadership roles. These adult attitudes are formed in the early years when no one interrupts the development of their racial framework that is based on racial superiority. Some might say, well, why not just focus on anti-bias and fairness? These, these are concepts children can understand. And race and racism are too abstract for young children is the argument I hear often. The anti-bias work in early child education, as we've heard from Makai and others, has done a great job laying a foundation to support children's healthy development around issues of bias and fairness. However, it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't give children the tools to recognize issues around whiteness, power, and anti-blackness specifically. Because whiteness is not explicitly addressed in most early childhood curriculums, children learn that white people are the default or the norm and everyone who is not white is racialized. No amount of treat everyone equally is going to dismantle the inherent superiority in whiteness if you don't name it with young children. Instead, we must have these conversations with children about these big ideas in ways they can understand. And as described by Lelania and Makai and Angela, right, we're doing that. Children are more than capable of having these conversations. And I think we do them a disservice to think that they can't handle it. They more can handle it. They need us to introduce it to them. Most of what I just shared addresses the need to disrupt racial superiority development in white children. However, to combat the, race, the white supremacy socialization, we also need to address the needs of black children and racial inferior, inferiority that often develops in them. Anti-blackness is so ingrained in, in our society that 11-year-old black boy playing with a toy gun can be killed by police who believed him to be much older and deserving of that kind of treatment. Researcher, research has found that black girls are adultified by their white teachers and often see, seen as leading less, less, needing less nurturance and emotional support. Preschool expulsion rates, as Dakima mentioned, for black boys and girls continue to grow despite the work of anti-bias and demand for fairness. The reality is that society devalues blackness and black children are inundated with anti-black messages. Last year, right before the pandemic hit, there was a viral video of a little black girl getting her hair done by an older black woman. And as the woman is talking to her, the little girl says, I'm so ugly, and she starts to cry. Many comments on this video assume that someone told that little black girl that she was ugly. And it made me think, as a former little black girl who also grew up believing that I was ugly, I don't remember anyone telling me that, but I believed it anyway because society taught me in many, many ways that whiteness is beauty and blackness is ugly. Black children experience anti-blackness in many different ways. And if they do not receive pro-black affirmations, many often fail to develop a positive racial identity. It took me years and I still have to consciously work to unlearn the racial inferiority I inherited by simply being born a black woman. Thus, if we truly want to provide an equitable learning environment for all children, we must specifically ensure that Black children are educated in environments that make positive racial identity the norm. Now, I know pro-Blackness can seem scary because people think it implies anti-white, but the opposite of pro-Black is anti-Black. Pro-Black means centering Black joy and Black humanity. Pro-Black means teaching that Black is beautiful, good, intelligent, caring, brave, and worthy. We can't expect Black children to develop a positive racial identity if we ignore race and racism and focus on sameness, differences, and equality. 
Some might say, well, that's the parents' job, not the schools or the teachers. And I agree, parents must be the first person to affirm a child's black identity. But unless that parent is going to keep that child locked up and away from the rest of the world, they can't do it alone. Schools and classrooms and educators must also believe it is their responsibility to help black children develop a positive racial identity. They must believe that black is beautiful and black is good and black is intelligent and black is caring and black is brave and black is worthy. They must strive for black joy and believe in black humanity. Otherwise, black children will continue to believe that they are less than because that is what society teaches us. I'll end by sharing a quote from advocate and activist Blair Imani. If black children are old enough to experience racism, then white children are old enough to learn about it. Racism doesn't wait for black children to lose their innocence in childhood and mature enough to handle it. And often it is other white children who introduce them to racialized thinking that damages their ability to develop a positive racial identity. We, as early childhood educators, must accept the responsibility to ensure that our field in early childhood challenges racism and anti-Blackness to ensure that Black lives will matter in the early years and beyond. Thank you so much, Denisha. Makai, do you want to comment? Yes. Um, so I have an example to share. Um, a few years ago, I had a white student in my three-year-old classroom uh, who my co-teacher and I observed uh, avoiding and excluding two black girls. So we responded by uh, helping the class to create play pan excuse me, play plans um, that were open to all. And we were already uh, doing anti-bias work, um, you know, through puppets and family visibility and self-awareness and books. And then for relationship building um, and perspective taking, we have buddy play. Uh, where the children are paired up randomly and on a rotating basis. Um, and then there's time set aside for them to take turns choosing what activity to do um, and also maybe to make something for each other uh, so that they can spend time with someone that they might not usually play with. And it seemed to be helping as she completed the year in my class. And then she moved on to the pre-K equivalent class um, and started making comments about Black people, such as uh, Black people are stinky. And so... Um, the teachers have been communicating with the family, but after more instances of stereotypical and harmful comments, I met with the family as the equity and diversity coordinator. And so we discussed questions such as, um, what has she internalized about whiteness and anti-blackness? Um, what are the consequences of her words? Uh, who do they affect? How does it affect her socially and emotionally? How can we help her to think before she speaks and to question her own biases? Uh, Ah, sorry. And um, how do the adults around her address it so that she is not shamed, but develop some perspective taking? And so we know that sometimes kids come up with uh, illogical reasoning to justify exclusion because it's easier to articulate. But um, excluding or using hurtful words based on what people don't have control over is not OK. And um, like Denisha was saying, affirming that each child is a racial being acknowledges that their identity is important and valued and that it doesn't make someone superior or inferior. Uh, we also discussed like uh, anti-racist and anti-bias practices they could do at home. And so I shared resources and um, different articles on like how children develop bias, uh, how to respond when a child makes racist comments and also how colorblindness is hurtful. And so I recently, over the weekend, reached out to the family to see um, how they continue to talk about race and racism at home. 
And so this is what she sent me. Uh, she said, after the meeting, the biggest takeaway uh, was that they weren't paying nearly enough attention to the issue on, in their day-to-day -day life lives, excuse me. And one of the first things they did right away was assess their family activities. So for example, they began attending events at the National Museum of the American Indian and the National Museum of African American History and Culture, where in the past they might've just gone to the Air and Space Museum or the zoo. They added books, uh, more books with black protagonists and books that focus on standing up for justice. And they also began spontaneously talking about issues that they care about and people that they admire. And she added that the work the family has done over the years was a good foundation to talk fairly openly about George Floyd and the uprisings over the summer. And so I want to add that family partnership is critical. Um, and not only were the messages from school and home aligned, but the child was being held accountable too in both spaces. So if adults don't address questions or misconceptions, those ideas can turn into bias that can lead, then lead to racism and discriminatory behavior instead of the child growing up as a co-conspirator for racial justice. Thank you. So much. I have some questions from folks who are out there in cyberland watching us. Um, so I'll, I'll ask one, this is from uh, Ms. Ray. And um, you can maybe just indicate if, if this is something you'd like to answer, okay? Um, how can early childhood education teachers convince administrators that uncomfortable conversations about anti-bias, anti-racist work are important and create a foundation for the work that teachers need to do in the classroom? Oh, come on. Oh, Denisha. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. I didn't see any. I was waiting to see if anyone else wanted to take it. But um, I think, it's, I mean, we do have to convince administrators and often we have to convince parents, right? As Delania can tell you, in New York City, some of our districts, whew, we get a lot of pushback from some of these schools, from these parents, you know. They they assume that we're, we're trying to teach white hate, right, to their children, which is really weird because the principles are so affirming, you know, empathy and restorative justice and loving engagement. I just don't see any hate in there. Um, and administrators worry that they're going to they're going to upset the parents. Right. Um, but I also and Lelaine, you might want to speak to this because I know, you know, it really well, but reminding them of our ethical observation, um, our ethical obligations as teachers. Right. Under the NACI code of conduct. Right. I think that's important that we have to remember that we have a responsibility to this. This shouldn't be optional anymore. We got to move out of the place where we think it's optional to have these conversations with young children, that it's not our job, right? And if you don't know how to do the job, then you have to learn. And I want to see teacher ed take on that too, that you're not just leaving here ready to teach children, you're leaving, leaving here ready to be an anti-racist teacher of people. And that's really important. And so um, I think we just have to remind them that our children deserve this, their families deserve it. Um, we sat in on a call with one of the districts in New York City, where the parents and the teachers, uh, the children have been and feeling very much ostracized by the school, right? And to hear these parents, you know, think, talk about how hurtful it is for their children, whether it's gender or race, that they're being attacked, right? The school realized it's a legal issue. <laughs> they are not protecting those children. The lawyer was like, wow, we need to do something about this because we are not meeting our obligation to these children and their families. And that's not okay by law. So even if we have to push you and shame you into doing what's right, we got to do whatever it takes to get you to realize that this is something that you have to take on. Anybody else want to comment on this? Yeah, 
Go ahead. I'll add one more thing. Um, I don't think that anyone got into the early childhood field, either as an administrator or an educator, to push children onto the preschool to prison pipeline. But that's exactly what's happening unless people know how to not pro- uh, propagate anti-Black racism. And so literally, when I speak to people and I teach them, I tell them, right, I'm like, let's look at the research. Let's look at the disproportionate rate of exclusions and seclusions, which means locking three and four-year-olds into a room alone, and corporal punishment, which is legal in over 20 states in this country, disproportionately impacts Black children. And so there are practices that happen either actively, right, saying this Black child is too active or this Black child can't be here without a parent because I can't handle them. And all these kinds of things actually put children onto the preschool to prison pipeline. And so is that, can you go to sleep at night knowing that even if you're a good person, you don't want that to be happening. The data is showing us that this is what happens as early as infant toddler programs. And so once we start to look at the reality of the data, not what we have our very strong opinions about, opinions are great, but they need to be rooted in fact and history and connections need to be made between individual behaviors, institutional behaviors, and systemic behaviors and outcomes. That's how you get a rich opinion that that means something, (laughs) right? And so for me, it's like once you start looking at that data, you've got to feel uncomfortable and say, I don't want to participate in that. So let me start doing some exploration about what is happening with my curriculum, my teacher practices, my interactions and communications with families and the community, because I don't want to participate in that for children. Thank you so much. So um, piggybacking on that really is a question from Aisha White. Is there content or are there activities that focus specifically on supporting black children's positive racial identity development? Anybody? Want to respond to that? Lelania, I think this is a plug for your book. <laughs> I mean, I wrote this book. <laughs> and this book also has a teacher's guide. And in that teacher's guide are resources for educators and other adults, as well as a list of kids' books that you can use organized by principal. Um, and there's definitely professional development out there to help us. Takima was talking about some of it. I offer some of it. I know that there are many people out there offering amazing development for teachers to do anti-racist and anti-white um, supremacist work. And I think that one of the things that is a little bit t- difficult is that it requires a little bit of work on our part. Like we've got to do a little bit of digging. You can't just click on a link. You can't just do one lesson plan. But we can't just teach kids how to read in one day, right? We're not like, here's the alphabet. Now you all know how to read. Oh, we counted to 10. Now you all can do math. So we know that it's an ongoing thing that kids have to do all the time. I will also um, send out a plug for Black Lives Matter at school. On their website, there are (laughs) curriculum resources by age, by grade, by subject, by principle. So there's definitely so much information out there and you have to do a little bit of looking, but it can absolutely happen. Um, that's so funny. 
I don't see the chat. Thank you so much. I so appreciate that. I don't see the chat, so I don't quite know how that works. But for some reason, some people are asking where you got your T-shirt. So those of you who have Black Lives T-shirts on, where are they they're from? Asking for, they're asking about Makai's T-shirt in particular. So Elena oh, and I are wearing New York City Black Lives Matter T-shirts. Um, Angela has the national. Hi, tell me about your shirt. Um, so I uh, recently did a session uh, with Rosalie Reyes um, on incorporating the 13 guiding principles in the early childhood classroom uh, for um, Gallaudet, uh, Maryland School for the Deaf, and uh, the Kendall Demonstration School uh, for pre-service and current early childhood um, educators. And Julie uh, Mitchner, who is the infant and toddler and families uh, who are deaf and hard of hearing program, master's program, she sent this to me as a gift. So I am so sorry. I'm sure if you Google it, um, you'll be able to find it um, and different ones like this, too. I can also say that that's one of the runner-up uh, designs for the New York City Black Lives Matter at school. So if you go to the New York City Black Lives Matter at school, our Teespring account, you can get a sticker that has that on it. And I believe also a mask. Okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, so here's a question from Samina Hadi Tabasum. Um, it's, the question is this, how is this curriculum an extension of other curricula used in early childhood classrooms. So I think I, I'm trying to make sense of the question, but I think it has to do with, is this a whole separate thing or does it build, uh, is this the sense you make of it or is this build on everything we do as early childhood educators? So I'll read it again. How is this curriculum an extension of other curricula used in early childhood classrooms? And then Makai, you want to go next? I'll, I'll be really quick. But so we talk about the principles all year long and we are, our curricula is community. Like what is our five, sixes community? What's our job? What are our roles and responsibilities in our community? And our roles are to practice things like being queer affirming and um, supporting black women and having empathy and celebrating the diversity in our community. So that goes through there. We have read alouds, which are for, you know, that's good for auditory or for reading or for writing. If kids are responding, it's also for, um, we can talk about math. I know that in my school, the eight nines, which is third grade, looked at all the books in their classroom and made graphs about who was on the cover. Um, we talk about windows and mirrors books. So that's oral language development. So every part of our curriculum can be looked at through the lens of Black Lives Matter. And so it's an extension of any kind of the curriculum that you do. It's kind of like blocks. Like I'm a person who really loves blocks, definitely from Bank Street, but anything you want me to teach, I can teach with blocks. Anything you want me to teach, I can teach through Black Lives Matter because these things are part of our whole lives. And we don't want kids to think that math is over here and literacy is over here and social studies is over there because that's not how we live our lives. Yeah, and I, oh, yeah. I, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. So I just wanted to add quickly that um, the 13 guiding principles are legit your social emotional curriculum. Like that's it. Like you really can just go off of those guiding principles and that's what they are. Like that is your social and emotional curriculum. Can you give an example of one more for the folks who haven't seen these and don't know them? We, we heard the one about 
um, you know, uh, restorative justice, but, um, and, and the queer affirming, but do we, can you anybody- them all really quick if you want. <laughs> can I just talk about my favorite one really quick or, though, yeah, Denisha? Go ahead, okay, my favorite one is collective value. Um, I think that that is probably my most favorite principle to talk about and, you know, to realize in my classroom with my scholars, you know, again, working at an African-American immersion school, we talk about Ubuntu all the time that, that, you know, Ghanaian principle of I am because we are, and that is 100% what collective value means. And so it not only gets them to understand their worth, but the worth of everybody that's in the community. We say in our classroom all the time, if one fail, we all fail. Like, so they know that that is, that is truly a reality that I want them to live by. Like they have to lift each other up in order for our community to be whole in our classroom. And I think that like to Makai's point, like that is SEL right there. And um, that is not the whitewashed version of SEO that we are getting right now from, you know, a lot of our school districts. And so the 13 guiding principles offer this opportunity to really, you know, d- dive deep into some of these, some of the social and emotional conversations that need to happen in these early childhood spaces. But I just really appreciate collective value um, in a classroom where we try to build community and think about ourselves as family. And I think that that's ultimately what like early childhood is, right? It's like community and family and us working together. And so the 13 guiding principles really allow us to do that. Did anybody else want to comment on the guiding principles? I wanted to make one comment less about the guiding principles, but a little bit about the overarching challenge, because when we ask questions about adding on, it actually reflects a deeper problem in our educational system, because Lalenia, what you mentioned about math isn't over there and like we know it isn't in reality. But in our educational system, that actually is what it looks like. And so people have to do the double work of figuring out how do I integrate learning and all aspects of learning into whole humans, right, that are in front of me. And then so, of course, it's going to be another step to think, well, then now I have this curriculum. And then how do I do Black Lives Matter on top of it? It is foundational, it is not, it is not separate, right? And so again, when you center the most marginalized people or people, the identities that are most marginalized in society, everybody wins. And we know that from what our electoral system (laughs) look like, we know, right? And we understand now, I just wanna shout out, right now we are living in a time where anti-Asian violence is at an all time high. It has been here for hundreds of years. So this is not new, but the invisibility around it, we can't just say, oh, let's talk about anti-Asian violence. And then if it if it goes down a little bit, we're not gonna talk about it. Like this is a part of being intersectional. Black lives matter because all lives matter that have not mattered in a society that children have grown up learning. And so it's work that we have to do to integrate our thinking. And that's what progressive education is about. And that will lead us towards being able to envision a curriculum that has the foundational aspects of the centering of humanity for black children and all children. Wow. So we're um, we're coming to the end of our time. And I want to ask if if you have anything else you want to say, a final comment or um, something that's coming to you that you feel like you want to, to say as we end. 
I do just want to share quickly. I saw this question pop up um, in the chat about um, advice for supporting black students while being a white teacher um, doing this work um, and predominantly white children, I think it says, with one or two black children in the class. Right? And I think it's a valid question because I think one of the things that we talk about every year when new teachers come to this movement is to really make sure you're prepared to do this work well, because worse than not doing it all is doing it badly. And anyone who was a black student in predominantly white spaces, that was my entire life. <laughs> well, a lot of us here, right? Um, we know the pain and trauma that it is to sit in a class when people are talking about you as an object and then expect you to be the purveyor of knowledge of all things black. Um, and there's no real humanity there, right? So I encourage a lot of teachers sometimes to really think you know, do the work for yourself. Like, like I think Lelania might have said it before. Someone else did. You have to start by asking yourself the tough questions about what did you learn about Black people, right? I love to hear a lot of people say, "I don't." You know, my ancestors weren't slave owners, and you're right. They might not have been because slave owners weren't a big part of the population. But were your ancestors the people who went to places where they hung Black bodies and watched? Were your ancestors the people who sharecropped over, over, um, oversaw the, the the enslaved Africans? Right, you you gotta interrogate your your family, your history, and your ancestry, and own up to this, right? Um, and realize where it comes from, and realize that you've been fed. A, a, a bunch of lies too, right? I love when Lelena says, you know, white supremacy, it's bad for everyone. Like we are all learning this bad stuff, white people too. And what I see as, as parents push back against the movement is that they don't know how to be in relation to their child when their child is pushing back against this racism that that is coming around, right? And I think we should want better for our children. You should, and it's going to be uncomfortable, right? It's going to be like, wow, my child might call me out for saying or do, doing something that's, ra that's racist, right? But that should be okay. That should be a place of growth and learning and understanding that they're going to be better than you. Um, so teachers, white teachers, get with other teachers. Don't do this alone. Get with other teachers who've been doing this work um, with white teachers. Do the work internally yourself. And remember that the best thing you can do for children is listen, let them talk, let them share. A lot of times black children will go to a white teacher and, and talk about something that they feel is racist and the teacher is quick to dismiss it. Oh, I know him. He's not being racist. You just you read that wrong. Please stop. That that's just a miss. We get real mad when men do that to us. I know we do. <laughs> um, so we really have to think about that and how we approach that. And so give them a space to talk and to be honest and to share with their experiences and know that you're not here to solve all the problems. You're here to listen and offer support and offer guidance. Right. And so really take the time to do the work um, because, yeah, it, it really matters if you if you do it poorly, it's not going to feel good to you or to them. Uh, I just want to underscore that line that you said of, I think that white teachers and white adults actually need to work with other white people to explore their own race, racism and racial experience. And it isn't the right time for mixed race conversations necessarily because white people have a lot of work to do themselves that really has to go on, I think, with other white people to get to a certain point where um, we can begin to engage in uh, the more intersectional relations. Um, so another, does I somebody think, else want to comment? Well, I was just thinking one thing that I have found to be so helpful for everybody, and I wish people would think about this also, is that if you find yourself thinking, ah, Black Lives Matter, and like having a fight or flight response, take a few deep breaths. And then I'm not going to say you have to look at my book, but find out what the 13 principles are. And if any of them are confusing to you, I do recommend my book because if you can explain it 
to yourself like a five-year-old. Some of us need that because we've been learning these lessons since we were five. So we're not bringing our grown-up brains to this question. We're bringing our all throughout the years brain, right? So think about it and think about each principle and what each principle would mean for our society. And then I think we can have a good productive dialogue about what they mean. Because I notice often people are like, well, I don't, ah, Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, okay, so empathy. You don't want kids to learn about people's feelings. And people are like, oh, well, actually, I, I do. And really allowing yourself to be open to what the actual principles are, not what we're worried they might be. Not what the world has told us that being pro-Black means, right? Because that's a story we've been told. But let's look at the facts. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at what the principles actually are and what they are leading us towards. And I think more people are going to want to get there than realize. That is uh, that is a beautiful message to end with. Um, uh, you five women really impressed me, and I've learned an awful lot from you, which I appreciate. So I'm speaking for the hundreds and hundreds of people who are on this webinar, and hopefully they feel the same way. And um, we can hopefully, wherever each person can take what they got from this, um, watch it again if you need to, and um, figure out how to, to take from what we've learned from you and apply it to our own situations and figure out ways to move forward towards this goal that we've identified of moving the whole field of early childhood past anti-bias, which was good and solid for what it was, but we're going somewhere else now. And how let's let's try to move there together as a field with a lot of listening, as Denisha mentioned, with a lot of dialogue and a lot of um, personal exploration and hopefully collective action. So thank you, each and every one of you so much for this tonight. Thank you all so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.